0: Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank. Gary's back. I told you I'd have you back on. We uh, missed out a couple things on the last podcast, but I enjoyed our conversation so much. I'm happy to have you back, man.
1: Thank you very much. I uh, I went through the, the first uh, hour and a half or whatever we did and I'm trying to remember if I had talked about New Orleans and all I did was make uh, uh, comments that I'd get to talking about it and I never did. So...
0: It usually happens in the Kennedy assassination. We end up talking about one thing, and it dives you into a whole bunch. But before we get to New Orleans, I wanted to ask you a question. What do you think about in this new bill that Larry Schnapp and everybody's going after um, trying to get passed? Do you think about making everything JFK-related, material-wise, public domain? I've noticed it a lot about people that claim the rights and own the rights to certain photographs and footage, even if you want to believe the Sixth Floor Museum where they say they own the Zapruder film, which I'm pretty sure is public domain. Um, I've just noticed that talking to a lot of filmmakers, Randy Benson, Joe Green, they always talk about, oh, we got threatened to be sued by them. And I go, doesn't that stop somebody from making something? You know, How much potential out of all the material JFK-related – um, that has been put out that has been gathered together and made into a film a book or anything like that how much of material has been limited because of the fear of being sued or gatekeeping on certain documents and certain photographs that i've seen published well over a dozen times in all other various sources
1: yeah I, that's a great question i hadn't really thought it through as far as you describe it um i uh I've spent time on JFK Facts with uh, who's, the, who's the investigator. He's Jefferson from Minneapolis. Yeah. We met, I don't know, a few years ago in Minneapolis to talk about um, some of my research. And so I follow him a little bit. And uh, I don't know that he's the type that has uh, tried tried to control any of the information, even though he's got... His website JFK Facts. That now that I think of it, you'd you'd think would be a place where he would copyright stuff, but I just haven't noticed. He seems to be so prolific, and uh, on top of things that uh, I don't I don't lose any confidence in his his take on material uh, that is being uh, monopolized by. Some other researchers, I, I tell you the truth, I don't know who they are, but it doesn't surprise me, I guess, because
0: well, that's I've never been thought- independent researcher, I meant more about the establishment six floor museum, other things that necessarily they get materials donated to them, or they buy materials, I mean, I got a letter sending about using footage in a podcast episode. And the guy's like, it's $15 a second. And I was like, what? And I was like, for educational purposes. And it's like, yeah, educational purposes. And I was like, oh, and they're like, it's a flat fee for using the footage that what you did use it's flat fee for us finding that and saying $500. And I was like, what are we talking about here? Like, this is nuts. And it's, I, that's my big concern. And I started to notice, I had to ask a couple of researchers about it. I don't think researchers are the problem. I think it's, um, some of the institutions or museums that claim that they own that material.
1: Yeah, I mean, I had interactions
2: with Gary Mack before he passed away, starting, I don't know, 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, I think he he would monitor forums
1: and then he'd send you a private email saying, no, you're wrong about this you know, you shouldn't be thinking this way. And uh, it just seemed very intrusive. And so maybe that's par for the course for the sixth floor museum to be
2: kind of a corner of the market. I mean, I've been interviewed by them in their uh, oral history uh, process. And uh, I just hope that they aren't charging people
1: to look at all those. uh, I, I... For one thing, you pretty much at this point have to go in to the bookstore on the first floor of the
2: museum to get access. Uh, I'd be surprised if they're, you know, limiting access, but uh, who knows
1: at this point. Even the Mary
0: Farrell site does it too. And I mean, it's, I get it. You got to make money. I understand that a hundred percent, but also when it's like, Mary Farrell sites, like the national archives, when people think about it, like researchers, at least they go like, you can find it on Mary. They have good extensive documents, but you get five clicks into documents and you have to make an account with a membership and you have to pay a fee for the membership. Or I'm like, doesn't that limit people from being able to find the information? You think if you're trying to get the public interest in it, and then I I get, if you want to sell a book, that's fine. People are going to either be able to find the information or they're going to want to buy your book and get your take on it. But there's, that's a big thing for me when I was on the Mary Farrell site, after like five different document clicks. I was like, wait a minute! I have to pay for a membership, and I don't know. Maybe I'm just being anti-capitalist here. I'm not saying capitalism, but yeah, capitalism.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. That's interesting. I, I mean, I have some stuff archived there. At where it's based in at Baylor University, I guess. Um, so I should go in there and look and see if they charge me for my own stuff. So, uh, boy, I'll have to think about that question, but I, I don't have a better perspective to give you on it. Um,
0: I just take it from a researcher standpoint, like you probably understand like how important it is for the public to get the information, especially all the work that you guys, every individual researcher does as well, too. I mean, that's interesting that Gary Max sends people an email about things that they might have gotten wrong. I consider that more respectful because half the time you on those education forms, it's just people back and forth spouting off like speeches about another person's work and it's like well where's the correction on it you know what i mean right
1: right yeah well um i can start talking about new orleans here yeah um in i believe it was the 88 um i went to a teacher's convention in new orleans at the superdome and stayed in the Marriott on Canal Street. So that was my first time in New
2: Orleans. And uh, I was mesmerized by the the scene, but I had just read a book, which you're likely familiar with, uh, Reasonable Doubt by Henry Hurt. And very good book. And I had it with me. And I'm standing on canal in front of my hotel.
1: And I look across the street, and I see an archway at a build on a building caddy corner from where I'm standing. And I think to myself, man, that archway looks familiar. So I run upstairs, get the book, Reasonable Doubt, and flip through it and find the picture that matches that door frame across the street and it's where oswald is passing out literature and of course we've all seen the picture where that's what he's doing right so then i within a few hours it seems like i mean i'm walking back and forth to the superdome for teacher convention meetings and uh but i you know i'm finding time to i'm going to new orleans and this book is full of stuff about new orleans it's
2: 19 it was published in uh, 92 and uh so yeah no 85 so it's 88 i've read it in the previous three years at some point and
1: bring it along because it does talk about new orleans and I walk across the street at some point, and here's a bookstore, and there's a stack of these things in the window, in a in a pyramid sort of display, and it's Henry Hertz Reasonable Doubt. I couldn't believe it, <laughs> and they were for sale for a couple of bucks, so I went and bought two, and I figure out where the Crescent City garage is, where Oswald supposedly hung out at uh, a- Adrian Alba, A-L-B-A, his uh, parking garage. He, it was a
2: two-story uh, affair, and he owned it. And uh, so the next day, it must have been, I I walked down there with the book, hoping to find him there.
1: It's his son that's in the, the office where... You pay your parking fee and so on, and I said, uh, "So where's your dad? Well, he's he's at home. He'll be here later, you know." And later was didn't happen for me, but I I said, "Well, give him this book as a gift for me." And uh, his son had never seen the book, heard of it, and I got back from New Orleans and I called him and a couple different times, which I've got recorded uh we discussed the fact that he had gotten the book from his son and then he went into detail and verified a lot of the stuff that's in the book and you know i've been back to new orleans lots of times since 88 since my son was living down there for 10 years until a year ago and i'd always return to the site where it kind of really took off with my interest in oswald in new orleans and they've when I went in to the office part of the ramp in eighty eight it was just as it was in nineteen sixty three His son was very proud of the fact that they had preserved what it looked like uh twenty five years earlier. I mean they had a sense of history that it, the dad was involved in Adrian and uh there were even I swear there were even gun magazines on the end table sitting next to the chair that Oswald would come in and sit on and look at the magazines, the pop machine that he would use during his break was still there. And, uh, when you go back now, it's been a, a year or so since I've been there, but the whole thing is boarded up, the ramp is gone but they saw fit to preserve the part of the ramp that was the office. I'd say 20 by 20. All the windows are boarded up. I don't know if every bit of paraphernalia from the pop machine to the gun magazines are inside or if they've put those away for safekeeping someplace. And I I, I think I tried to call his son in the last few years to ask him, is, is this boarded up because you're trying to you know, get some support to make it a historic site or what.
2: So maybe I'll still find that out. But, um, when I'm talking to Adrian during these phone calls, he tells me that, uh, Oswald would come over during his break and, uh, he was working at Riley coffee, right. Which was an anti Castro
1: operation. At least the owners were involved, the Riley's, involved in anti-caster activity. And so here's Oswald working there as an oil oiler of coffee grinding machines is what I understand. So anyway, he, t- he comes over and he sits down and thumbs through the uh, magazines. And Alba was a, a, a gun
2: collector himself. So that's why he had the guns, gun magazines there. And uh, he described one day Oswald was headed back to work, and the, the
1: street right there was really narrow like a lot of the older French Quarter streets are.
2: And uh, he said all of a sudden this, I want to say yellow or chartreuse Studebaker, he said,
1: pulled up alongside Oswald as he's walking
2: to his business right next door, and um, Alba says, I recognize the car. It was part of the Federal Building um,
1: offices of Naval Intelligence, CIA,
2: and other government agencies in the Federal Building right across the street. There's a big plaza. Um,
1: But he said that he recognized the car because the the Secret Service kept their cars in his parking ramp. So naturally he recognized it. Oswald leans over and Alba describes how whoever's driving hands him an envelope that Oswald puts under his t-shirt and walks on to Riley Coffee. Now Alba was interviewed by the Warren Commission, so I believe that's in, in his testimony. I mean, he wasn't telling me that for the first time. Um, and so that that I had I'd known about that, I think, from this book Reasonable Doubt by Henry Hurt. So I was just looking for more verification from Alba. And uh, of course, by that time he had I assume he had looked at the book that his son gave him. For, through me, from me.
2: And uh, he hadn't been aware of the book at all, which at that point, in eighty-five,
1: was the most detailed description of his experience with Oswald. And so we continued to talk, and
2: you know, he said uh, things like, "Have you ever, ever hunted squirrel?" I said, "Well, once." And he says, well, you know how it is using, he called it Kentucky windage to get a target back into the sights after you shoot once. So you got this this uh, kickback. And so
1: now you got to reacquire the target, whether you use an iron sights or a scope, probably tougher in a scope. He says, uh, you know, what he's saying is it's very difficult to do that. And so here's Oswald trying to get these three shots off in seven seconds or whatever it is, and uh, Alba just didn't think that was doable. He said, on top of that, when they handed the gun to me sitting on the Warren Commission stand, now apparently he, that implies that he actually went someplace,
2: almost sounds like a courtroom, where they handed him the liquor Carcano, And he said, I grabbed it, and holding the bolt, it almost fell out. It was such a sloppy piece of weaponry. And uh, he said, the reason I recognized it is Oswald had brought that gun into the parking office, Crescent City Garage. And he wanted me to try and get it ready to shoot. He said, I, there's, he says, there's no way I could get the scope
1: to sit straight on the barrel. I shimmed it, nothing. I I simply could not make it work. He said, I even took two belts and riveted them together and then attached them to the man liquor to, so you could wrap your forearm around through them and around them in order to stabilize the, the gun. He said, even then, it was, Impossible. Not. It wasn't clear that he went out someplace to arrange and shot it, or if he could just had an eye for whether or not a scope was straight on a gun and could see that he couldn't manage it.
0: You said he shimmed it, so he shaved the scope a little bit.
1: Uh, I took it to mean that he thought that if he slipped a slim piece of metal as a shim underneath the bracket holding the scope, okay. that he could. Uh, because he could see that it was loose, for one thing, and that uh, it needed to be stable and in line. But, you know, maybe he had a way to to look through the scope after he shims it. He could see that it still wasn't on target. You know, I don't know if that's possible. I mean, I shoot guns. I hunt. Um, I'm just I...
0: making sure because in the serial code on the Manly Kirk Carcano, or it's stamped on the scope. On the side of the scope, so I just didn't know if he shaved it down and might have shaved off the serial code numbers. Um, sorry, yeah, I don't think so. Um,
1: so he said, you know, he, he couldn't hit that, hit the broadside of a barn with that gun. And um, well, now we know. According to Henry Hurt in this book, we knew by 1985 that. Oswald had already received through the mail two guns including the manlik carcano and here he was sitting in Alba's office asking how to order guns and Alba thought that was curious um, why would he be doing that well one theory is that in Washington, there was a, um, uh, a, res- a a committee in the House, or maybe it was the Senate, I don't know, that was researching gun laws and how easy it would be for people to order guns that shouldn't have them, like kids or felons or whatever. And so one theory is that Oswald had been brought into that committee And as a defector to the Soviets, he had a record. And so they wanted to see if he could successfully order a weapon through the mail. But like I say, Alba understood and Henry Hurt understood that Oswald had already gotten the guns, two guns. In fact, one was the pistol from the California uh, gun supplier a pistol that he used on tippet or somebody used on tippet.
0: How can you, I got to ask questions. We can get to it later, but I got to ask questions about that pistol.
1: Sure. Oh, well, I, yeah, I don't know. That's all I know about the pistol.
0: Okay. I just don't know how it kills a cop and then 30 minutes later, it doesn't fire at all, you know? So, I mean, one bullet can be duds, but I I think I heard something about the firing pin was messed up and I was like, look, I mean, you can do as many mental gymnastics to make everything fit. The way you want it to fit but there's only so much where it just sounds like that's a little too much if you know what i'm
1: saying yeah i agree yeah um and alba didn't ever say that he brought the pistol into the parking garage office he he only mentioned the rifle and uh, so that, that, like I say, was the uh, first time I'd been to New Orleans and I felt like I had struck it rich, you know, finding finding the location where Oswald was actually uh, involved.
0: Did you ever ask his thoughts on the case if Oswald did it or not?
1: Did I ever ask Alba? Yeah. Um, I'd have to listen to the tape recording again, but I, I the fact that he would... Allude on more than one part of the conversation to you couldn't hit a broadside of the barn with a gun. All the implications were he didn't think that Oswald could have done it.
0: Did he ever explain Oswald's personality at all?
1: Yeah. I mean, he talks about how that his experience with him was that the guy was very calm and, you know, n- not at all. Seemingly volatile or saying crazy things,
0: you know. Um, Not provocateur like some of the depictions of them are.
1: No. Right. Yeah. We're some in some cases, you know, when he's laying a paper trail, he's. I mean, Alba didn't indicate that he ever even talked positively about Russia, like a lot of experiences are uh, described so he didn't have any animosity toward him. He never said, you know, that S.O.B. killing our president, and here I was helping him. You know, it was never that kind of description of their interaction. So,
0: now the the boss who owned the coffee shop was an anti communist.
1: Yeah, Riley. The Riley family were part of the New Orleans right wing. That uh, you know some. You know, I'm sure there's somebody that's tied them into um, see, bannister's office was was a couple blocks away,
0: Guy Bannister,
1: yeah. And so it's kind of a nest of right wing fascism,
0: yeah, well, it's interesting to me this scenario where he's handing out flyers is because I don't know if you've ever heard Reagan's quote before reagan quotes saying that the difference or a communist is someone who reads Marx and marx and lenin an anti-communist is someone who understands marx and lenin so you, it's a quote from reagan but if you take on to what he's describing himself as in the interview process of marxism and the different defini- definitions between communism and marxism and why there is a difference between those two on television you start going i mean if you got a communist work or oil in your machines and it's an anti-communist establishment that family is i just think like it just seems like the whole scenario is strange to me he's waving at cameras handing out like he's trying to be caught not really in an aspect of like i think he's just a provocateur is that that whole instance i think that was a bigger thing and I know that's obviously speculation on my part, but there's just a lot about it that doesn't make sense. I mean, the one they had filming this on the street, if it was a giant scenario from New Orleans, if most of New Orleans was right wing, I could see it. But then at the same time, getting punched in the face and then going to a police station and then asking to see an FBI agent is suspicious in its own, especially if you're doing the communist action. The last thing you'd want to do is ask your government for help or any agents for help. Yeah, right.
1: Well, John Armstrong would talk in terms of one is Harvey and one is Lee, you know, and they're doing this, this uh, mismatching and trying to confuse the the paper trail um, for any future investigators. That's an interesting way to talk about it.
0: Um, well, what do you think about him handing out leaflets?
1: Well, it's just, um, I guess my sense is that it's, it's, too obvious, uh, too provocative, a good way to get punched on the street corner, a busy street corner in Canal Street. Um, but, you know, <laughs> even even then, um, you know, he knew who he was dealing with. He probably you know, had enough security around him so that he didn't have to worry about really getting beat up. I mean, sure, people are going to get in his face, but, you know, he 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 was experienced at 23. He knew what uh, what he was involved in.
0: Do you ever find so, out why the Secret Service handed him an envelope?
1: No, no. I, um... That's, that was that,
0: Secret Service.
1: Yeah, that's the only mention I've seen of it. And that's from Alba, and he told told me that you know as kind of the takeaway from his experience that another reason why he didn't think Oswald was a loner. There he is, and I mean the fact that Alba's recognition of the car as being uh, SS was uh, the kind of the clincher for him. So.
0: I don't know. Hmm. Now, when it comes to you, mentioned Gary Schooner. Schoner. Schoner. I That's a name I think we didn't get to in the last conversation either.
1: Yeah, S-C-H-O-E-N-E-R. And he's still here. I mean, I talked to him. He's I live? Oh, yeah.
0: Will you do a podcast?
1: Well, see, that's why I asked you if you had heard of him, because I told him I was going to... Would he be interested? in? he said he would be. Ooh. And so I assume maybe a connection had been made, but yeah. We'll, we'll, you know, do, we'll talk about that on re-
0: we'll, yeah. we'll talk about that connection part. And we'll try and set that up off air. But tell me about him first so I can get to know who he is.
1: Well, like I say, he
2: was a student at Cornell uh, In in, must have been 67. And Mark Lane came to Cornell to speak and Shoner
1: attended the lecture and uh, was off and running
2: because he was so impressed by Mark Lane's research at that point. Well, then he subsequent I think he comes to Minneapolis to get a PhD. Um, some people would say
1: that's, you know, there's no other reason to go to Minneapolis. Well, I tend to disagree, but. Just because we've had 78 inches of snow doesn't mean there's no reason to come here.
2: (laughs) But he gets here and he gets a call from from somebody in New Orleans that uh, somehow knows of his interest. And they bring him
1: on board because there are things in Minneapolis that Garrison is interested in. And so now they've got somebody
2: in the backyard, and uh, Schoner becomes kind of an expert on some of the characters that
1: might be tied in. Uh, You know, the mafia, the Twin Cities mafia, is kind of invisible compared to other mafias, but believe me,
2: I've met them. They're real. And uh, (laughs) it's... uh, they to some extent they've gone
1: legit right so they're to the average person you don't realize that
2: all their real estate dealings are actually a part of laundering drug money yeah and so there's oh i mean for example um there's a guy named Gary Capone who's a grand nephew of Al Capone his father was Capone's uh brother and um, i interviewed him 15 20 years ago and i said can you tell me anything that would
1: indicate the mob was involved in the assassination he says well he says that's bad for business to talk about that right now come back in two years when i retire in the meantime he said i'll talk to
2: else sister my aunt in rockford illinois see what she knows so he's given me you know something and uh he just lives about 10 miles from me here and uh, owned a water softening business
1: so i go back two years later to talk to him and i said so i'm here he said when you retire you'll give me some information about Mob's
2: connection to the uh, assassination, his response was, Did I say that? End of story. So he never expected me to come back, right? So that was that. But then, I mean, there's, I'm sure every big city
1: has these kinds of connections. And then again, I'm not too sure because if you look at just about any book in the index, One of the first names,
2: if not the first name, will be a woman named Jean Oz. Let's see if it's in Hurt's book here. And she was with Jack Ruby the night before the assassination. And with a sporting goods salesman uh, from Chicago, where she was living at the time. And, uh, no, she's not in this one. I'll be darn anyway, I got to her in South or North Minneapolis one day about eighteen
1: years ago, and I went into the high rise twenty story high rise apartment building
2: and uh you couldn't get past the front door because it was a secure is it basically in the ghetto okay but I called her on the house phone from that lobby.
1: I couldn't get any further into the larger lobby. There was actually a security person sitting there. And she answered the phone and I said, uh, Ms. Oz, can you tell me anything about that
2: night in Dallas at the Cabana Motel when you were with Jack Ruby and Jack Lawrence? She didn't play dumb. She proceeded to say, "Well,
1: well, first of all, she was really upset that I was downstairs, even though I couldn't get past security. you know I, I mean, yeah, it felt like I was
0: stalking her, I suppose, but <laughs> well I mean, there's a lot of privacy when it comes to the people that are witnesses or people that were somehow not connected, but they were around or knew some of the figures that were involved in the assassination. So you're going to basically die with people trying to get information from you,
1: yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I knew a guy from Vancouver that showed up, paid $5,000 to a lawyer to interview her. And he couldn't get to first base with her. And he'd paid all that money. He'd come all the way to Minneapolis. This is probably in the 90s. Can't remember his name right now, but good researcher. So I didn't expect much either. But what she said was, that was a long time ago. Just forget about it. Well, she what she's telling me is she was there. It happened. Yeah, but I'm not going to talk about it. Forget about it. So sometimes when people say something that is a denial, it says as much as if she had said she was there, right? So she died five years ago, I think. And I, she moved to another high rise. I tried to find her another time. And then they told me she had passed away, but she was from Minnesota, grew up, I don't know, 50 miles South of, uh, of Minneapolis. So there's the, the family there and whether she ever, uh, told them much, I don't know, but uh, whether I'll ever get down there to talk to some of them, it's not that far away. might be worth a try. So, anyway, that's a little, that was an event also that happened in New Orleans that that I became a bit privy to. Uh, But Gary Schoner was here from 67 on. I wasn't. And so he was able to do some spade work for the garrison investigation. And not that he didn't go to New Orleans and help out with whatever he could there, um, but he, he became an expert on a guy in Minneapolis that wanted to implicate Hubert Humphrey in the assassination and wrote a manuscript that has, according to Schoner, disappeared and um, nowhere to be found. Uh, and I, I can't remember the, the name of the guy that that did this manuscript, but uh, he definitely tried to, you know, like, like I say sometimes to people who benefited from the Kennedys being assassinated. And I said, you know, people have various answers, but I say, well, what about Hubert Humphrey? Johnson doesn't appoint a Uh, a vice president till August of 64 before the convention. And it's Humphrey. Now, Humphrey had a machine in Minnesota that got him elected. You know, he comes across as a totally pro civil rights uh, politician. And I respect that. Um, But when he, the idea is that when Humphrey took over Minneapolis as the old youngest mayor of a major city in America when he was thirty-one years old, um, he he walked into a situation where the mafia already ran the city, but it was a Jewish syndicate mafia, and he tells the story apparently that he told the Burmans. Uh, Very, very wealthy family that Minneapolis wasn't big enough for them and the other mafia family, which was uh, the guy was the godfather was kid can or Sidney Blumenfeld, who was tied into Meyer Meyer Lansky and, you know, ran a lot of real estate operations in Florida. And. uh, So. So Humphrey then gets the nomination in 68 for the presidency after RFK is killed. Well, there's two situations where a machine could be, you know, like they always say, the mob is going to elect a president. Well, maybe that's what was going on. Um, When I go to the archives in in St. Paul, the capital, to the State Historical Society. I get to a certain point in Humphreys files and they're locked. So the librarian will say, the curator will say, um, file a request to be able to see the files. And I've done that. But the response is, you don't have enough credibility or, or whatever you want to call it, to let us let you see the files. So there's something there that's being hidden. And Gary Schoner's belief is that, um, well, he's not ever come right out and said that Humphrey was involved in the assassination, but by implication that, uh, I, I think there's something to it. Um,
0: do you think – do you trust the archives? I mean any of the national archives? I've heard varying different opinions. I've asked this question to a couple of researchers because I even asked this to Tom Samaluk when he was on. Do you trust the archives about handing over material over there? I mean it's a government institution I would say. you know, They got the symbols for it on the side of their building, so they patriot that around. I just – I feel like you're giving documentation. And then I just take the quote from Hale Boggs where he's talking about Hoover wiretapping congressmen. And the guy's like, What's your evidence on that? And he goes, You're asking the FBI to investigate the FBI. Like, basically that message is good fucking luck. So I get to this, I get to this point where it's like we have the archives, which is a government institution, even the JFK library. I think it's good to have like photos of like Kennedy, Christmas time, family. That's cool and all, but like documentation-wise, and the number of stuff that's locked saying you don't have the credibility to view these things is the biggest issue I have with the document's not being released either. I mean, whether you want to say who did it, I don't care who did it. I'm tired of that question. And it's like, that's what everybody wants. It's like, oh, you're probably never going to get an answer. I hate to say it like that, but sorry. Um, I would lean more towards the government, but only because I'm pointing out what we can really expose as corruption, whether it's Secret Service members that should have been fired, police corruption, warrant Commission cover-ups, or testimonies that were accepted and some that were left out. I mean, from historical purposes, I would just gather up all the information and let the public sort it out for themselves. I mean you're going to have conspiracy theories either way, but to dismiss the work of Mark Lane or dismiss the work of Garrison or dismiss the work of Blakey or dismiss any of that type of stuff is just nonsense. I'm sure new information and new perspectives come out, obviously. And I don't think you need Garrison at all. I haven't really even learned about the guy um to get to the level of conspiracy. You don't need that. Just look at the number of things that were error or evidence based that were either manipulated or it took a while later to come out that didn't depict what they said. I mean, the Warren report doesn't even match the volumes. I do trust testimonies and I've talked to memory experts about memory in general before even getting into the Kennedy topic. I think there's some that you can trust. I trust Jack Anderson about him talking about Hoover. Because he's so specific in detail that you'd have to be the most creative mind imaginable to be able to spout that off on national television about Hoover and Clyde Tolson going to a a ribs restaurant. And then Hoover would get a grapefruit salad with a side of whatever. And Clyde Tolson would get some type of soup, but except on Tuesdays where he would get a bean soup with a little bit of ketchup poured in. I go, that's so specific and weird. Where it's like you can take that with whatever you want with it, but I try and – it's the stuff you hear that's un-JFK related that is like the most interesting stuff where like learning about the mob and the connections. I can tell you that when I ask you – I'm going to ask you what – you think the mob, how deeply connected they were. I mean we knew they were working with the government to assassinate Castro. Those accounts on how many attempts there were speculated or I don't know. I've only seen a total of probably 20. I haven't seen the 634, but you'd have to buy Fabian Escalante's book to get that. But I can tell you through looking into Hollywood, the mob influenced Hollywood, and so did the FBI. Hoover was looking for communists and and homosexuals and all these things, and the mob was influencing them. I think even Sammy the Bull is a mobster, has a podcast where he talks about getting uh, Steven Seagal to make films for him, you know, for the mob. Because he was trying to get in with the mob at some point. That's coming from Sammy the Bull. But there's a lot of mob influence that I've learned from Hollywood historians and kind of like the darker side of Hollywood and Paramount Studios or Paramount Pictures um, that is just – it's been a stranglehold on that business. Now, we know about the relationship with organized crime, the mob and the government working together, right? doesn't sound right because every movie that was depicted was the good guys or the FBI agents and the bad guys or the vigilantes or the mafia figures. You know, the – godfathers that really corrupt and really dark you don't want to be anywhere near them well that was on purpose and then you actually look at events that happen in history and you start to realize that the police force had some connections with the mob whether it was corruption anything like that and then you kind of realize they painted a picture a narrative to paint in your head and that's like then you find out that the truth is that they actually are pretty connected In a lot of ways. And then you get to the point of Hoover never acknowledging the mob, him calling it a state problem, or you can believe the mafia figures. And I've seen the pictures of him in a dress and all these other things. I don't know. But I would put weight into it for the mob killing RFK and then the government covering it up. Either way, you don't need to say who or why. You just look at who did it. You don't anybody can pick a name. But then look at what follows after. Look at the manipulation. Look at everything that was covered up. Look at the evidence that was lost. Look at all this. This is a major historical event that has the most crappy recorded history. And when I say crappy, I mean it's because it's so recorded that you don't have a fucking answer. I hate to put it like that, but it's so frustrating. And I'm I'm kind of speaking like to the public in this matter of things when I do so many of these episodes is that everyone has their own individual theory, and that's fine. But there's also like a real account of like documentation we no longer have because it was destroyed. It was lost. It was in someone's basement who still hasn't come forward. It's all these types of situations that gets a little bit difficult when you start hearing that there still have documents yet to be released and they say it's national security. Please define your terms. That's it. That's all I'm asking. It's not a big ask, you know?
1: Very good. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I don't trust the National Archives. Um, I mean, like I said, when we talked before. I was there, and I open up the boxes for the day I saw Kennedy in '63, September 25, and one piece of paper says "withdrawn for national security reasons." So what I say to does the curator, that "Mean?" Yeah. So I say to the curator, uh, "Explain this." Well, file a FOIA, you know, and then you hear that the Curators are are part of the problem, or at least not all of them, but there's they've been infiltrated by CI assets, and so they aren't ever gonna give you what is missing. That kind of thing. And the same thing goes
0: even in the 22 release. I have a document, I'm pretty sure I sent it to you, and I sent it to many other people as well, too about a person receiving a polio inoculation. As she's receiving the polio inoculation, the doctor says this will make you forget everything, even getting the shot, because she overheard some people in the Central Intelligence Agency talk about Kennedy was bad for this country and he had to be dealt with within the next five years. Did I send you that?
1: I don't recognize it.
0: I'll pull it up. That's in the 22 release, and I don't know what the hell to do with it. I can't explain it. I could just show it to you and be like, look at this, what I found. And then I can even laminate it and put it on my wall if I want. But there's nothing to do with it. It doesn't make sense. It's like when I spoke to Blakey and I asked him about a lot of these documents, JM Wave related, and that was three months before the release or two months before the release. Next thing you know, the release happens and you got 60 pages with 100 documents or 50 documents on each page talking about JM Wave. So I don't know why that's there. I don't know why when I talked to David Montague, he told me he couldn't talk about the Lee Harvey Oswald interview at the mental institution. I mean, is that still being withheld? Is that I, – I clicked on the file on the Mary Farrell site, and it gives me an error page. Oh, so,
1: Yeah, I mean um, when, the, when the latest stuff came out, I thought, well, it's a good time to try to track the conservation tour material that – was withdrawn for national security reasons. And so I I sent the request to uh, the National Archives, and they, they said, well, we don't see anything here, so go to the Kennedy Library in Boston. So I did that, and they said, no, nah, we don't have anything about the conservation tour. Well, you know, it's a major 10-city... Uh, six day visit that Kennedy went on and so then I go back to the National Archives and I say to the guy initial guy that I talked to they don't have anything in Boston so what else can you tell me he says well I'll send it up to my manager that's going on two months ago you know and, and it, it the lesson I've learned is whether it was Gary Capone or other people I've interviewed that don't think you're ever going to come back. And so they give you a limited hangout. And then you come back and they deny they ever said it. And so uh, in the case of curators, whether it be in St. Paul, Minnesota, protecting the senators' records of the governor. I mean, get this. This is how prolific their their control is and with jesse ventura about four years ago long story as to how familiar. we ended here pardon
0: why does that name sound familiar
1: jesse ventura yeah governor of new york governor of minnesota oh okay that won the you know he ran as an independent and and won he was that professional wrestler
0: that's right that, okay. now yeah, i know you're talking about
1: yeah yeah so there I am in a hotel room in St. Paul.
0: I was rolling it back in my head like, I don't know fucking governor. <laughs> like, what? And then I realized, okay, oh, yeah, it's the wrestler.
2: Yeah.
1: So at that point, he wanted to talk about in, in the hotel room, his wife was there and she was with somebody else. And so we were off in a side room in the suite. Wasn't his hotel room, but at any rate, um, he, I said, is it true? that what your son told me about you having to be dealing with a a gatekeeper as governor of Minnesota, that was CIA. He says, yeah, he says, the first person I met when I entered the governorship in Minnesota is a CIA gatekeeper. And he's the last person I shook hands with when I left as governor. He said, I was so glad I didn't win a second time to have to put up with that, you know, censorship, watching me because I'm off the rails. And he's all about conspiracy and the assassination. You know, he's Is uh, he really. Oh, yeah. Is he open yeah, to you, talking about it? Well, if you. I, I have to believe he would. I mean, he talks about it all over the place.
0: Give him a phone call.
1: Yeah, I don't see it in order for me to get to him. I had to go to a book signing at the Mall of America, and I didn't buy the book. I just got in line, and I went through the line, and I got to him, and I said, um, can you be at a at a book talk in St. Paul at this bookstore? And he said, yeah, I'll try to be there. Well, it was a book talk by Judith Very Baker, me and Lee, et cetera, et cetera, So he's pretty close to her. And he showed up. And, um, but yeah, he, like I say, to get to him, because he's so, he's basically a celebrity, okay? And he, he, it's not, he's as tough to get to, maybe tougher to get to than when he was governor. Because at least when he was governor, you could go through a secretary and maybe get to him. Uh, and this is four or five years ago. So I, you know, I'll try and I, I try to think of a way that you could finesse it to, to get to places that I couldn't, uh, maybe just because of the fact that you're doing a lot
0: of interviews and have a conversation. Yeah. Yeah. We call it, we call it conversation. I hate when people say interview. I've never done an interview. <laughs> yeah. Do but, you see, know, I mean... Do you want to see the document real quick? Sure. Okay, so like I said, this is part of the 22 release, and I just want to – like I said, everything I'm doing now is I've been through over 64,000 things of documents since I started doing the whole assassination and getting interested into it. So I'm trying to verify where a lot of sources are coming from, where certain accounts come from, like Wilson or Hudson, whoever was in the prison with Traficante that saw Jack Ruby come visit. I put a lot of weight into that because he said it long before the HSCA or the church committee, whoever, exposed that who Ruby was in Havana. When that guy said, but this is in the 22 release says assassination of President John F. Fitzgerald Kennedy, Dallas, Texas, November 22nd, 1963. The part right here is the interesting part, which is during the week of March 21st, 1961, after returning from lunch, she overheard a conversation between blank and possibly blank uh, employees of the Central Intelligence Agency, which took place in the Central Intelligence Agency office located on the second floor of blank. She stated that she does not recall who was talking, but that the conversation concerned the fact that the president was not doing what was good for the country, especially about Vietnam, and that he had to be done away with within the next five years. She stated that the following this remark, the group noticed that she had returned and the conversation was terminated. This is is the weird part. Blank stated that the following Friday, she was given U.S. Army orders by blank. Uh, The personnel officer to travel to an unrecalled army medical facility blank for a polio inoculation. She stated that upon arriving at the medical facility, she was injected with some type of drug, which the medical technician later told her was a drug that would make her forget everything. Blank stated that she now recalls that the technician told her that she would even forget getting the shot and that upon returning to her office, she was questioned about the injection by blank. And she remembers that she told him that apparently she had received a polio inoculation, but did not recall at all the time of receiving it. So I don't know what to do with that. And just to be fair, because in the world of Warren Commission fans and lone nuts and conspiracy theories and all sides have problems, trust me, I'm not picking on one. When you use a statement like that, that is, a, that is, that is her recollection. So that is one person's recollection. It is very specific, but not specific enough to where I put it like this is 100% true. What I make it to be 100% true or what I think would put it up there to be 100% true is that she works for the Central Intelligence Agency if she's in their building in the lunchroom. So you have everything to lose, your pension, anything like that, unless they – had I mean they have the sense to put it in a document to talk about it. But her even saying those words and jumping out if it wasn't true at all is going to cost you your job. It's going to cost you everything. So I put that on the front. So – I can get like, obviously going through documents There's Sometimes I'm like reading stuff and then it, it can get you down a rabbit hole and someone can kind of push you back into. And I think that can happen with like Garrison. I think that can happen with Mark Lane. But a lot of the stuff that they did talk about has been verified and has came out to be true and proof with documentation. Now there might be specific details that people can nitpick and say all this. That's like the whole purpose there is on that basis of a conclusion. If you look at the Warren commission, it was a crappy investigation. I, don't, I know there's people that apologize for it, whether you want to say they were time pressure or anything like that, but then look at the later investigations. At least the history books could talk about the HSCA, which they don't do. I mean they can talk about plenty that the research community has proven to give a better picture of, than what we know in 63. It's not a big ask, and that's not a big conspiracy. That's not saying who or why. It's just saying update. You have other things that came later and things that I think would be – I mean do you think Garrison's investigation was kind of doomed to fail? Any of these, I mean, the House Select Committee was basically doomed to fail. They were limited by the Central Intelligence Agency and then also put on a time crunch. And the ARB as well, too. Their job should still be active because of the fact that not all the documents are released. Yeah, well,
1: of course, Tenheim, I mean, he's still a federal judge, but he's told me that, yes, it's still open. Um, I'm sure he mentioned that to you when you conversed with him. And, uh, you know, he was, he was, um, recently on, on the, the lawsuit news, news conference. Uh, he was there at the panel with, uh, the various people initiating the, the lawsuit. So that was a big deal when I saw him still involved at that level. So, And he you know, doesn't believe he,
0: conspiracy at all he doesn't believe, he doesn't believe conspiracy at all he just thinks it's i think like i said it's where we can all agree on is that there should not be any more disclosed documents i mean just recently there was 589 million dollars that was published for the fbi using informants oh. so yeah. i mean When you start looking at like things that we can really start to question about our intelligence agencies and what the church committee was able to prove that was not corrected and nobody punished, Um, the Central Intelligence Agency was not punished for any of those CIA on campus. They're still actively doing that now. That doesn't need to be this giant like all orchestrated grant, but it's complete corruption in the way that the American public is receiving the information, which goes back to what I was saying about the mob and the FBI. Was the mob connected to news outlets? I'm sure that Wilson or whoever was in Traficante or in prison with Traficante in Castro's prison that saw Ruby. I'm sure he knew Traficante. Traficante didn't know him because he called him some crackpot reporter. I I don't. I mean, like I said, that's how you dismiss that statement is calling him a crackpot. But that's well known throughout. Any of tactic is just labeling somebody's character and cutting it in half or calling him crazy. I'm like, well, he was a reporter, so someone thought his crazy had some genius. So there's a lot of like things where I start going, did the mob have influence on media, and if so, how deep did it go? We knew the government. You told me about Alan Dulles giving three thousand dollars or however much money to someone that was in a magazine thing. So you get to the Life magazine issues, get to Operation Mockingbird, which Just an aside in the new release, I found a document from 65 that said get your covert media assets in line. Now that's still Operation Mockingbird. Now if you Google Operation Mockingbird, it said it ran for three months in 63, just three months. That document was dated 65. That's two years after it said it ended. So I mean, it's where the really importance of checking powers is here, when you really don't give anybody a punishment for destruction of documents like the Secret Service did again, and did also to Thunheim when he asked for the prior assassination plots, you do not correct them or punish them for the actions that they do, and they just don't see any expense of doing it again. Exactly. I don't think that's conspiracy. I think that's pretty straightforward.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. and. um, you know, Gary Schoner and his dealings in New Orleans and interfacing with stuff that was happening. And like I said, he was here from
2: 67 on. He would, on occasion, he did uh, talk shows. One I specifically remember he described uh, just a few months back. It went on on a major station locally for 24 hours. This is in the late 60s. People were just avid and rabid about
1: learning about the assassination. So the phone calls just kept coming in all night, and they stayed on the air.
0: I like John Orr's response, where he says it's the best murder, mystery, true crime thriller real life historical event of all time it's got everything you could want you got a fbi you got the mob you got all these figures and i was like yeah it is very connected and it's just trying to find out which connection is the right one it's like pulling a st- a thread i just hoping you get the correct one that gets you to the hundred dollars and not a pile of shit <laughs> right yeah um
1: well so Talking about New Orleans some more. Um, The next time I got down there after 88 was, I don't know, it had to be when my son moved there in about 2000. Uh, No, I was there before 2010, another time. But it's getting a little hazy in terms of timeline. But uh, at any rate, every time I would go, which I think is 10 times I would make a point of going around and tracking all kinds of Oswald connections. I mean, I went to David Ferry's house to just get a sense of where it was uh, in relation to where Oswald lived.
0: Did you ever think his death was suspicious?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, seemingly too coincidental to happen when it did and
0: was that right after garrison's investigation closed
1: yeah yeah and uh you know i even drove across poncha train on the long bridge to go over and see if there was any access to the uh, military base where they were supposedly training the anti-castro contingents and uh you know Obviously, I wasn't going to get in through the gate, but it's just, I guess I learned by laying out a, a map and a turf as kind of the context in which a lot of this stuff seemed to take place. And so uh, I go to Judith Very Baker's uh, apartment not far from Oswald's. I go to the, you know, a, a lot of her activity was about places that she and oswald frequented now i don't know you know i'm agnostic pretty much on her her thesis that uh, she was going to run away to mexico with oswald but part of my attempt to understand what she was saying um, you know was to navigate all of the physical places so for example oswald lived on St. Charles, or a block off St. Charles, and it was a main main drag there in, in New Orleans, in the Garden District and that kind of area. And uh, so I found the house, because the address was accurate. I got a printer going here for some reason. I don't know if you can hear it. But You'd, you'd approach the house and it was possible the first time I went there to knock on the door and a lady said, come in. And so I go in, my wife and I, I think my son was with me on one occasion and uh, she gives me a tour of the house. And she said, when I was a kid, I grew up in this building and there were, there were actually three apartments in Oswald's house. There was a real small one in front. There was a, a a main one and then a third one. And she said, I can remember we were standing in front of a window, looking out into the backyard. And she says, I can remember when I was a kid seeing Oswald in a trench coat, walking out to the garbage can and, throwing some stuff away, but I also understood that he was going through other people's garbage. Now, was he going through the garbage or was he just putting stuff in somebody else's garbage can like people are known to do? But I mean, it was that kind of detail that she provided that, again, like you say, it's kind of a situation where uh, why would you make it up? How would you have that kind of detail well the next time I went there now there was a camera she had moved somebody else was in the house now who knows it could have been a ex-boyfriend or something but a voice says do not come any closer so I didn't um I probably tried to go back another time, but knowing that, uh, the cameras were there was pretty, pretty cautious, um, and, and didn't make any headway. And then whoever owned the, the, uh, apartment, the, the shotgun house, one floor, uh, they, they sold it to a law firm and the law firm gutted it so now it's a remodel i still have some contact with the two lawyers because one of them when i went at went in after it was um, uh, remodeled i was told by the receptionist that the one lawyer was really interested in the assassination and he made sure that when they gutted it he left the floor plan as it was when oswald was there hallway down the middle of the shotgun house and um and had framed pictures all over the walls of news stories about the assassination so here was another example of somebody wanting to preserve history and uh we're open to i mean i went there and spent an hour talking to one of them and one of the two lawyers and they were all ears you know they wanted to understand what this building they were in had in terms of some important history but the one thing they did which upset me was the city said after they remodeled and now instead of the three apartments there's one law office right from front to back and they said we uh, had a choice as to whether or not we wanted to keep the old address the actual address It's in all the assassination books or change the address. So we changed it. So that's going to throw off people who, you know, for whatever reason, there might be uh, a a key thing to understand about where Oswald was living. Um, It's going to be a lot tougher because they're going to not get to the right address. It doesn't exist anymore.
0: It's like uh, when Larry Schnapp was telling me the dangers of censoring out a name out of a document. Um, if that person dies and you then unredact it, that person's dead. So think about the number of researchers that could have asked him questions that people probably wouldn't have even thought to ask. You're limiting a whole area of focus. It's kind of like um, when you live with someone for so long or you're married to someone and they give up their career to go do whatever. You stay at home or whatever, and then you guys divorce. You have to pay them for the things that they could have achieved if they were working so it's it's that you're there's a whole it's like future people when you calculate a graph for statistics you account for future people maybe in five years someone will figure out the answer to this and then we'll be okay it's a very small bet and you probably shouldn't do it but it happens a lot so you get to the future part all right bet on how many future researchers could have asked this guy a question why he was alive but you had his name redacted i mean there's an importance in that and also i stand by um the area when it comes to redactions if you're being a part of something and the only reason you're agreeing to be a part of it is because your name's going to be redacted out then maybe you should know that that's not morally right and you probably do know that and you probably shouldn't be doing it you know i would love to see some mk ultra names and see if anybody else is alive be able to talk about that subject exactly yeah um i have to ask about david Ferry's death why do you think it's suspicious i had to find it on my phone he apparently well this says he died of a Friend of Oswald's struck by a blow to the neck and died of a brain hemorrhage. Um, but I kind of looked into a little bit more from the Warren Commission low nut side and also the conspiracy side. I mean, did, did he have a condition that would have caused something like that? I mean, it is suspicious. His best friend died in the same month in the same year. Um, so, I mean, oh, there's, a, I, there's a lot of that. Yeah, I didn't know that. But uh, it says uh, I guess his friend is DeValley, Devalle an anti-castro cuban associate of david ferry was killed on the same day as ferry by an axe blow and gunshot wound to the skull i mean i'd have to go search into that a little bit more but why do you think david ferry's death's a little bit suspicious
1: well just because of all the things he was involved in and you know we see him with oswald at the uh, civil air patrol picnics or whatever and uh but he denies that he knew Oswald, and there he is with him. You know, sure they could be in a picture, but and not know each other. But there were still um, the the crowd there wasn't that big that it would would imply that they it was too big to know each other. Um, so ju- there's just too many things about his uh, involvement now. A lot of a lot of it, I think, has been put out. Not just by Judith Very Baker, but by the researcher uh, that wrote another book. He's, he's still alive. Well, he might have died in the last year.
2: But What's the he's name? the guy that... Huh? What's the name? Well,
1: I've, I've spent some time with him at conferences. Uh, doesn't come to me right now. But uh, How like I, I, said, I don't think so. Okay. I'll 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 find that and send it to you because I it's just a matter of finding the book that he wrote. Um but he put out there a lot of detail about the lady who was uh actually a orthopedic surgeon, but was involved with the supposed research into developing a, um, not a vaccine, but a injection to kill Castro. And when she died, he talked about the fact that he's sitting with his father, who's a doctor at Tulane and his doctor mentions that she was found dead the night before, just like a mile away at her apartment. And I've been to the apartment to get a sense of what that looks like. She had an apartment on the balcony level, but one half of her body was
0: burned. Oh, Mary Sherman, Mary Sherman. Yeah, I know who she is. She's a. I, yeah, I, I see people say how is she connected to the assassination on some stuff, but that's one of the biggest suspicious deaths because the official, I think, death was knife wound to the heart, which was in her autopsy
1: yeah and that uh, she was burglarized and yet she was found on the bed with half her one half of her body, body just incinerated and there's there's a theory that at the uh, national institute of health in uh, along the mississippi and i mean all of these places are within a few miles of each other so here's this national institute of health facility where there's supposedly a particle accelerator that she was using in order to do research. And that was used to create the burns on her body to kill her. Like she was there and somebody intercepted her
0: and, um, you know. That's Judith Baker's um, saying that Oswald was a delivery person to this place that she worked at and I don't know man I mean I think she's nice I've had some back and forth with her on some emails on some things just to verify where she gets some of the documentation on stuff from but I don't know there's a, there's a little bit there where I think it's like some of it's good and some of it's not there's just some stuff that I don't know I question but I'm yeah. like that with everything though I kind of yeah. there's something Well I-
1: with the guy that wrote um, the book about Mary Sherman <laughs> but anyway um, I went to the National Institute of Health and and uh noticed that you had to have, I mean, it was oh, it's Edward
0: T. Haslam. I was wrong, right? right. Bravo yeah. to you, you got me.
1: <laughs> Can't remember the name, but
0: I, <laughs> no. if you said the name of the book, I would have, I know what you're talking about, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
1: and who the hell's Peter? so anyway? There, there, there's a building inside the wall. And I wanted to get a sense of whether or not that could have been a particle accelerator. Well, without getting inside the actual building. I mean, I think I've seen pictures of the inside. But, you know, it's a real stretch to uh, actually determine that there was a particle accelerator in this. I mean, National Institute of Health facility, uh, you know, they would have a particle accelerator someplace at a National Institute Institute of Health facility, but it was pretty hard to see how this building that Baker purports to be the place that Mary Sherman was killed is, is really there, you know, and I've been there a couple of times and you can't get through the walls. The walls have, even though they're these old brick, 150 year old walls, they still have electronic, um, sensors in order to get in. I saw a guy do it that worked there. Um but at any rate um Dr. Mary's monkey is is pretty impressive. Um
0: it's you know, too I've out talked- there it's too out there for me. I know a lot and I could probably look at like a historical event to be able to I probably would understand it more but for me, it's like trying to get people to the level of conspiracy is the only thing I'm trying to well not really conspiracy. Just really just give them like to understand like you can't just roll your eyes at the the topic of you know, conspiracy, especially when it comes to the Kennedy assassination. It's the most damaging thing, especially for the people that put in so many years of work on both sides, whether you're disagreeing on stuff either. I mean, if it's so case solved, then why has it lasted sixty fucking years, you know,
1: yeah <laughs> well, Haslam is impressive but on occasion he said a couple of things that made me think that he was after a movie contract because it could make a hell of a screenplay but did he, did he make a movie pardon That's no. what I'm,
0: che- I'm about, to, I'm about to say, i was checking if he's making a movie i was like hang on a
1: i don't think so but
0: you'll get shot day one my friend <laughs>
1: yeah yeah it's just the idea that uh you know, people can be involved in this and write books and and not admit that they're hoping to have it turned into a movie. Um, but you know, if if something is uh, really lucrative and it, it can't help but cross the minds of even the most uh, legitimate researchers, um, I don't. I I don't want to. I don't want to implicate anybody in that. But he he did say a couple of times to me, or you know, maybe this will become a movie. Um, maybe that's what Judith Baker is after, who knows, and the more the more provocative the scenario is, the more likely it is to get noticed, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't shame people for making money off this stuff. I just a lot of stuff comes off like really, really. I mean, even if you got a little bit of truth in it, like I'm, I've never seen the JFK film. I've seen gyms. Um, I watched it hundreds and hundreds of times. I think it's fantastic. But then, like, once you're actually researching into some stuff and there's like a lot of stuff in there, I just feel like there's more conclusive evidence on some other things that you could probably get no questions or anything about. Like, there's not really been an answer to Oswald getting a job at the book depository a month before the route was even published in the newspaper. And then there's also not really, I guess, any criticism when it comes to Kennedy's speeches in Dallas that he could have easily took a shot at, you know, drove to, took the day off work. You decided to take a shot from your work building. It's like shitting where you eat. It's a little bit like weird. And then not leaving a note. And people say he did it for the fame, which is like, well, he didn't leave anything, you know. Even and even in the PBS documentary, he was asking the two witnesses that stated this that worked there. That Oswald came up to us and asked, Hey, what's everybody looking outside for? I'm like, like to not seem suspicious that he was going the it's a small town. I'm like, for God's sakes, everyone, the president's coming to town. You're going to figure it out. You know what I mean? Like, it's just a dumb question to ask. Where is that a made up scenario? I mean, even in that, I think that same documentary, they were doing the analyzation of the Zapruder film and the guy asked the question, he goes, looks like the head goes back. And then the guy goes, well, to so the untrained eye, you don't know if Jackie Kennedy just pushed him back. And I go, he just said that what are we talking about? And like, that's how we have theories of like Jackie Kennedy pulling the trigger. And then Jack Ruby didn't shoot Oswald. I was like, that's all going too deep into the minutia for me where I'm like, can we just stick with like the basic facts, which is here's a lot of corruption around that time. Here's how our government was at that time. And then look at the evidence and start going into what was taken or what was left out or what was not omitted or where's the evidence for that? Where's Kennedy's brain? Answer that question. That's all. Did Robert Kennedy take it? I have no freaking clue. Right,
1: right. Uh, You know, talking about the mob, whether it's in Minneapolis or New Orleans, opposite ends of the Mississippi is kind of an interesting image. Um, But. Carlos Marcello, of course, basically was running New Orleans at the time. And uh, so I went to a restaurant last time, I one of the last times I was there, Italian restaurant. And I had heard that Marcelo frequented the place. So we go in, we're standing in the waiting room, place is packed. And I said to the manager, where's... Uh, Marcelo's picture. He says, and, and there were hundreds. I mean, there was no empty space on any walls. He said, like there a, is no like
0: point. a TGI Fridays.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And he said, uh, there is no picture of Marcelo. But then he pointed to within few <laughs> feet of
0: him. I'm sorry. I thought you were about to say, but he pointed and it was Regis. I was like, why He's got Regis, but he doesn't have Car- Carlos. Yeah. <laughs> no, but he
1: points to a picture and he says but there's his family well unless you knew his family you would never discover that that picture was of his family but he wasn't there okay so we go sit down in our booth or a table and i pick up the menu and here's at least five selections on the menu called Marcelo this Marcelo that so here was the menu which memorialize carlos Marcelo, but of the hundreds of pictures in the room not a single picture of him so i mean just kind of a strange combination if if he's on the menu you'd think his picture would be on the menu and a big portrait you know uh but not the case and so you know he i went to his uh one of his houses in a very upscale part of uh of New Orleans. And the story was that he had, it was right across the street from the country club. And the story is that he got so sick and tired of listening to the, the country club set, and their talk and and their problems and so on, that he, uh, he moved to a working class area town. So he, Even though he couldn't read, he was still somehow controlling the rackets in New Orleans. And, uh, you know, the tie into Oswald's activities in New Orleans, you know, and his, his father um, or his uncle, M- Moret, having mob ties. I mean, it, it, it's not a stretch at all to think about Oswald in terms of the New Orleans mob. Being in the loop and trying to help, whether it was Secret Service insiders, FBI insiders, uh, create this profile that would implicate him. And uh, you know, it's like you wonder how many loose ends there are in a place like New Orleans. If you if you've lived there your whole life, you probably have a story. My son was living in a duplex. The woman in the front of the duplex, this is in Metairie, that is an unincorporated city of 100,000 right on the edge of New Orleans. This was Marcello's turf, and I tried to find out if Metairie had never become incorporated because Marcello needed to have a place that he could be invisible in. And if the city isn't incorporated, he's got a lot more wiggle room to run his rackets. And so the woman in the front of my son's duplex I said to her one day something about Marcello just as a as a tease to see where she go with. It. Oh yeah, my uh my girlfriend had a date and now this woman is 80 years old that I'm talking to and she says, "Yeah, my my girlfriend back in the day, back in the 60s. Said her uh, boyfriend was connected to Marcello's operation. He sa- she says, that was the end of it. I didn't want to hang out with this gal anymore. Because it was just too intimidating because Marcello's presence in Metairie and New Orleans is so powerful that the average person, uh, it's second nature to know ab- about that power structure. I was there. I think it was the same time I described uh, going there and handing off Henry Hurt's book, Reasonable Doubt to, to Adrian Alba's son. Um, I had read a, an article in the Nation Magazine before I headed out to the convention and it was about the My Lai Massacre. And the author was a guy named Ron Reidenauer, and he worked for a weekly entertainment paper in New Orleans. And I call him up and I said, I just read your account of the Milai massacre. Uh, could we meet? He said, yeah, yeah, I'll meet you at the Marriott on Canal, such and such a time. And so we sit there and the takeaway was, he, he says, you know, if you have a scam and you can articulate it, to the Marcella organization, they will fund it. A scam. It's that easy, you know, and this Ron Reidenauer had blown the cover on the My Lai massacre. His, uh, you know, he had access, well, he, he was a medic at My Lai, also called Pinkville. And so he called his senator, Udall, from Arizona and and said, this is what happened. This was a total Nazi-style massacre of these villagers. And so Stuart Udall, senator, ran with it, and it became, you know, a big deal. But here was a writer in New Orleans who just, you know, again, it's like, Marcelo is the water, and everybody's the fish in the water. Um, you know it, it, it's it's like, and I, I don't think it's changed. I think the descendants of Marcelo still have a lot of action. My son had a metal band here in Minneapolis, and then his bandmates moved to New Orleans, where some of them were from. So my son ended up staying there for 10 years and ran a nightclub with some of his bandmates. Well, the place burned down. Who owned the building? Vince Marcello.
0: They call that Greek lightning.
1: (laughs) Yeah. A lot of that on the East Coast. Yeah. But, you know, here, I mean, it's, it's like every place. I mean, the chances that my, I would find out my son, I mean, I started, I get back to Minnesota and I think, holy shit, what mm-hmm. if, what if something happens and Marcelo, um, well, in fact, one of the, one of the guys in the band ended up committing suicide and may have been up to his neck in debt to Marcelo. And then the place burns down. So that's too close for comfort. To have your own son uh, around the periphery of that kind of uh, New Orleans
0: atmosphere. Yeah, maybe we shouldn't talk about. It. I don't want to get in trouble. I'm not scared of the mafia or the government killing me. You know what I am scared of is the damn CCP because they'll fuck. They'll come after you. That's a, that's that's one where I'm like, I don't want to even look. Hey, if they solved the JFK assassination, that's how if they really want to stir up violence against Americans, just give them ten minutes. Two guys from the CCP? Are you kidding me? They could solve it. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm banking on, to be honest with you. I put out put it out there so many times now, or like they really want me to stop talking shit. Just go ahead, solve the Kennedy assassination, and I will shut up about everything you guys do.
1: <laughs> well, they may know more about it than we realize considering the so called China lobby with it was run by or Henry Luce and his wife. Who was uh, Mussolini, the US ambassador to Mussolini? Um, you know, they talk about how uh, certain Democrats, I suppose, in the 50s lost China. And uh, who knows how much the Chinese government has in the archives about Henry Luce and his involvement in. Uh, life magazine and the
0: that's a podcast that's a different podcast let's let's save that for another time but gary you gave me enough of your time man i do appreciate you chatting with me again i always appreciate our conversations and uh like i said i'll get you on again um as well too another time and uh hopefully get a panel at some point i'm planning on putting one of those together Uh, but where can people find your links
1: well, like I said, the, uh, previous interview, you know, you can conversation. Google huh?
0: conversation.
1: Yeah. You can, you can Google, uh, Severson Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, amazingly stuff comes up that are linked, whether it's to, uh, John Armstrong's site or, uh, Mary Farrell at Baylor, um, I'm gonna give a talk in April at Augustana University in Sioux Falls, South Dakota um, about the theme is outlaws in the Dakotas, and so I'm gonna bring a, a scenario about um, Oswald and his possible presence in North Dakota trying to trying to do something illegal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I mean that's another story the the whole Oswald thing in North Dakota that I worked on back in two thousand, which seems like a real stretch, but uh that's another
0: I'll write that down for the next time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But
0: I'll I'll put your links all in the description. Gary, it's been a pleasure chatting with you and thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.